We uh, have a special uh, event, if you will, today. We uh, have a baby dedication, and I'm pretty excited about it because I'm kind of related to this baby. I'm excited about any baby dedication, but this one is uh, this one's this one's my grandson. <laughs> Daughter, for how many? Twenty years, was it? How old were you? Got married, 
19? Yeah. <laughs> Ellie made us my Ellie made Clampett reference. She swore she wasn't going to get married right out of high school, but man, I couldn't ask for someone to love her more. And so the third thing God gave me to pray for my daughter was that she would um, have the desire and ability to do what he was going to call her to do in life. He would give her some OJT as she was growing up. And exactly what you just saw her doing, that's what she was doing. And now she has a helping in this family. How long have you been married now? A little over three years. Yes, I did their wedding, but I'm getting old. But uh, a little over three years. But man, they 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 are a beautiful family that uh, are leaving leaving their life together. And now God's blessed them with Keone. Everybody say, Hey, Keone. Hey, Keone. All right. So early on, after God gave me those uh, that prayer for my daughter, I want to encourage you to pray for your children, your grandchildren, in the same way. You can continue that. He gave Linda and I this psalm. I want to just read it to you really quick. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So right away we knew that if we did not let God build our marriage, build our family, build our house, build our home, that we were laboring in vain for uh, to try to build it ourselves. And so he says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, Eat the bread of sorrows, he gives his beloved sleep. In other words, don't worry about the things you can't do anything about. He said, just keep trusting him and do what you can do. <coughs> but look at verse 3. He says, Behold, <coughs> I'm getting all choked up here. Uh, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, they are a gift from the Lord. And he says, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows, look at this, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. This is like a little arrow, man, for God. Happy is the man, JJ, who has his quiver full of them. <laughs> a quiver doesn't, it doesn't tell you how many you have to have a quiver. But right now, a one in this quiver is full, right? It's good enough. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of They shall not be ashamed until speak with her in the gate. The one thing I want you to take from this song is this, that unless the Lord builds a house, you labor in vain. And you got to build it upon the, on the, the rock of Christ Jesus, not on the sand, the sinking sand of this world. So that's what we're going to pray, that God would give them the desire, ability to be able to raise Keone based on his principles, being able to grow up seeing life from God's perspective. So if you would, join me in prayer. <coughs> Father, I want to pray for this family. Um, and Father, I, I want to pray first for this daddy, that he would love you with his whole heart and with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength, with everything that he has, so that he would then be able to love his family. And Father, you tell us that as we love you, you cause us to love others. And Father, I am so grateful to have a son-in-law that does indeed love his family and uh, has shown that over these last few years. But Father, I pray that he would grow more and more in love with you so that he would grow more and more in love with this family that you gave him and this church family that you brought him to. And he could be the leader of this house. You would show him uh, things from your perspective, Father, so that he can lead his family to follow you in that way. Father, I want to pray for this mama who I know is one right now that gets to stay up all night, the one who realizes that being a mom is a sacrifice and that her life is now not her own anymore, but she not only has a husband, but she also has a child that she puts before her. Father, I pray that she would continue to be 
filled with your spirit, you fill her with your love so that she can keep those priorities in line. And Father, I pray that you would put a hedge of protection around the enemy. Put a hedge of protection around him that the enemy cannot penetrate. A hedge of thorns around him, Father. So he's on a path that's surrounded by thorns so that every time he tries to get off the right path for you, that it will be difficult. And anyone wanting to come onto his path that's not supposed to be there would have a difficult time to do that. So, Father, I pray that this family would not only see things from your perspective, but they would be a family that would need others to see things from your perspective. And, Father, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said,
God had prepared me for what we would be doing here at Driftwood yet, but long before God ever put in my heart to do what we're doing at Driftwood, they heard a chapel message by a guy named Clint Clifton, and the guy was talking about planting churches, about going places where there was no church, about, about starting new churches with a, a small body of believers, and as those grow, then you start other churches, and about planting churches, and so he said, pray for where you're supposed to plant the bee, plant the church. Now my daughter, she probably didn't have to pray. I hope she did pray, but where was it going to be, Ashley? The beach, right? So they called me up, and they both were excited. I remember the phone call. It was after chapel. Both of them were there. And they said, guess what, guess what, guess what? I'm like, what? And they say, we know what we're supposed to do with our life. Isn't that a great thing to hear from your kids? All right, but you always take that with a grain of salt, right? We know exactly. I mean, how many of you all adults right now know what you're supposed to do with your life? Yeah, we're yeah. still like, oh, I got it. But they said, we are supposed to plant a church at the beach. And I'm like, uh, and I've got a million questions. How are you going to fund this? How's this going to happen? Uh, I didn't say one of those. I'm just like, awesome. I'm excited that God is speaking to your heart because, buddy, there was nothing I could do to them of anything different. But they were like, we know God has called us to plant a church at the beach. And I said, well, what do you do this? Well, obviously, I have to graduate. I, you know, all these different things. So there were a few more years. So I'm sitting there kind of waiting for all this to go down and thinking if, whether or not they were going to lose this desire or not. But I want to tell you, this desire to plant a church at the beach, long before God ever gave me a desire to do that, was in their heart. And he wouldn't let it go. And he kept it going. I kept saying, you guys still in for that? Because they had, were in a position where they could have job offers at lots of different established churches where there were all those quote-unquote benefits, but it wasn't what they were called to do and where they were called to be. They believed where they were supposed to be was right here. And I'm sitting here thinking, this economy is horrible here. Good luck! <laughs> you know? <laughs> the church at the beach, who's going to want to do something so silly as that? You know, and think it'd be a great idea, but there's so many things that it's not going to work, but I can't tell them that because that's what God's told them. Well, long story short, what happened a few years ago, right when we got Driftwood started, right as we started, we were out here on the beach, um, we had, had a couple of services, and I went up to my sister's beach house up in the Panhandle, and I'm sitting around the hammock, thinking, praying, I'm relaxing, I'm thinking, man, God, how is this going to work? God, we got like eight people on the beach. We just had our first service right here. Was anybody here in the first service that we had right here? I think our whole team was actually on vacation. You were with about five other people, right? Remember Jackie with the cello looking like, where is everybody? We were in this big room, and there's maybe six, seven of us up there. And I left, and I'm like thinking, God, how's this going to work? And all of a sudden, I get a phone call from another church. I had thrown a resume out forever, and uh, ever since we started Driftwood, but somebody got my resume a long time ago. Said, hey, we're so and so and so and so, and we got your resume, and have 250 resumes, you're in our top 10, aren't you excited? And I'm like, uh, who are you? <laughs> and I'm like, <coughs> he's like, aren't you excited? And I was like, well, yeah, I am. I want and one thing led to another, and we start pursuing, and we start just seeing if that was God's will, because we didn't really still know here. It was like, I don't know if this is going to work, but God's going to figure out.
pick something up, he's going to either shut the door or open the door. And in pursuing this, our heart was never with this other church, even though there was all kinds of a benefit package, all kinds of, all the temporal things. It would have been the perfect place for a pastor to retire. But God was like, is that really what you want to do? And I'm like, no. And in fact, we got down to the very end of all of that. And I asked my family, I said, God, can you please pray? Whether we're supposed to go out to this little country church and just kind of die out there and have everything. Yeah, we're like, oh, little body, you, you do that. And what it came down to in this church is that my job would have been not to keep God happy, but my job would have been to keep four rich farmers happy. And if I kept those four guys happy, buddy, I was told in the interviews they would buy me a house, they would buy me cars, they would do all this. And my wife's like, how long do you think you'll be able to keep them happy? Because <laughs> you want to keep God happy. And I'm like, you're right, I'll get fired just like the last guy. And so I'd ask my family to pray, and I said, guys, will you please pray? Because here we got driftwood, and I don't know where the next meal's coming from. Here we've got this, and I know where it's coming from, but... Oh, it's just like a bowl of grits with no butter, man. It's just like, talk about it. Anybody here eat grits? Yes. And those who don't like it probably don't eat it because you don't know you're supposed to put something in it. <laughs> like the old ham bone or something good. But anyways, it was just like, hmm. And I asked my family and I said, guys, what are we supposed to do? Will you please let me know? And nobody had a piece about going to that other church. Everybody... Didn't know how it was going to work out here. And I'll never forget, the last one I didn't hear from was JJ. And so finally, JJ calls me up. And it was almost one of those conversations where someone's been kind of, they don't want to like, you know, don't want to offend you. You ever get that conversation where somebody's been waiting and waiting and calls me with this crappy voice like, all right, now this is what I'm going to say here. And don't get mad. He's like, you know, kind of that kind of thing. He's like, he's like, you know, we've been called to plant a church at the beach for a long time. And I'm like, oh, I, are you still there? He's like, yeah, and if you leave Driftwood, you'll mess all that up. Remember that conversation, JJ? I'm really good. <laughs> he did. He just spilled it all out. If you, I'll never forget those words. If you leave Driftwood, you'll mess everything up. And I'm like, well, I don't want to mess everything up. But that was the confirmation, JJ, because after that point right there, and that didn't take very long to get from A to B, but at that point, that's when I knew. And the other thing was this, Miss Ellie. She was just visiting, and we weren't even up here at the point. She took me out on the patio there, and we're looking, and she grabs me by the door, and I knew what kind of, I knew who she was, really. I mean, she was sat behind me in another church, and, and she goes, oh, Pastor Eddie, it's like God's prepared you your whole life for this. And that's what I told that other church. I'm looking for the place where God's prepared me my whole life, because this is where we go out right now. This is it. This is probably going to be the last ministry, and we're going to take it till I die, man. <laughs> we're just rolling. And so when she used those exact words, those words and those words, it was like, all right, cool. I don't care what happens. We're doing this. And we're going to let God just do what he's going to do. We're going to trust him to take care of us. And he's going to do things one step at a time. And he started bringing each one of you all. You remember when you first came, each of you guys? And it's cool to look out here and to see the different people he brought at different times. And I can tell you guys, every single one of you, when he brought you, it was such an encouragement, even to this day, of bringing you. It's like, I'm just saying, you can't hide it, Driftwood. I'm just telling you right now. But, yeah, and Paige, you come to Bible study Thursday. I'm just saying, each one of you are so special in watching God bring you, knowing that he's brought you here. It's awesome. But JJ and Ashley have had a vision for about four or five years to plan a church at the beach. 
And they were patient. And they were waiting for God to give them the okay to leave where they were at to be able to come here, knowing there would be so many uncertainties. But not too long ago, through just numerous different circumstances, all the way from Natalie get inheriting a house and saying, I'm supposed to live here, so now you guys are supposed to live here. <laughs> and then living in Natalie. I mean, you can't believe how God has continually set these things up. And I've had the privilege of watching God orchestrate it all. I can't tell you what's happening after today. I can't tell you what's happening after I just said those last words, but I can't wait to see what God's going to do. But I know God has brought them here. I've watched them. And if there was anybody worthy to be ordained as a pastor of the gospel ministry, I'm going to tell you, it's JJ. Yeah. And it's not because he's my son-in-law and I want to keep in the family and it's a little like, you know, it's not like Caesar in that junk, right? I'm just saying that you look at the qualifications, he meets those. And as I put those out this morning on Facebook, I had a lady reply. She's one of our snowflakes. She comes periodically because she lives up north. You know, our snowflakes, they, they come, and then five, six, seven times a year, then they dissipate, and then they come and they dissipate. Well, she was one of them. She put down and said, well, it sounds like everybody's supposed to live like a pastor. And it was like, exactly. The pastor's supposed to live this way, and through him serving people, others will live the way they'll follow that pastor to example. That's the idea that you're going to see. And then as others follow that example, and they serve, then others see that. And so we learn by each other's lifestyle, hence helping each other see life from God's perspective. So let's jump in to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. And so you know, this is the way pastors are supposed to lead you. This is the way, you know, God would like you to lead, but he's giving you somebody, hopefully, that will be an example. And none of us are perfect. I will guarantee you that. Ask my wife. Ask any of my kids. But this is what I'm striving for. And I know this is what James is striving for. And this is what many of you are. So let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to go to seven quick verses. Verse 1, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing this to Timothy, who was a pastor of a church. And he was saying, guys, you know, you can't do it all on yourself, on your own. You have to build leadership. You have to find people who are called to continue, people who are called to help you do these things. And here's how you find these people. And here's how you train them. Here's what you're looking for in all this. But he says, this is a trustworthy saying, Apostle Paul said. If someone aspires, if somebody has uh, a desire to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So what he's talking about, that word aspire to desire, aspire to desire, it's two different things. One is internal. Internally, there's something in you that makes you want to be a pastor. And that's what that word church leader we're going to talk about is. It's talking about a pastor, bishop, overseer, um, or elder. It's, it's used synonymously in the Bible. But he says there's going to be something internally causing you to want to be that and have that position. And to prove that it's there, you're going to externally be going trying to achieve it. J.J. went to the Baptist College Florida. J.J. graduated the ministry degree. J.J. has done youth ministry. And by the way, when are you guys starting? Do you know yet? Or For what? Our uh, youth ministry? Um, first Wednesday. We're this Wednesday, Friday. there's going to be a youth Bible study. They're starting at, is it at your house, Natalie? Still, we're good. I'm not putting you on spot. All right, good. That's what we have. Yeah, dude, God gave Natalie a house. To, now we can have a youth ministry get started right on Indian River Drive. JJ and Ashley are here to get that going, among other things that God's putting in their heart. So there's, there's things that you do with 
desire that's internal, you do these external things to show that that's the desire God gave you. And so in this, he said, if someone has that internal desire to lead in the gospel ministry, they're going to be doing things showing you that that's, the, that's what's happening inside of them. It's going to stick out. And so he said, but that's a good thing. He who desires that position, go back up. He said, he who desires that, it's an honorable position, regardless of what our society says. Now, this is the New Living Translation. I decided to use that today instead of the New King James that I usually use. Why? Because it's kind of just a simple, common sense approach to it. That's why I'm going to explain some of these words. This word, church leader, okay, gets translated four different ways in the Bible. How many of you ever heard the word pastor before? All right, pastor. How many of you ever heard the word bishop before? All right. Uh, do you think they're the same thing? I mean, when we've done, they are the same thing. Okay? But bishop tends to lend itself to thinking of a hierarchy where, you know, this bishop is up here and you serve him. But I want to tell you this. Pastors, pastors are leaders that serve. The rest, deacons included, are servants that lead others to serve. So a pastor's job is, to, is a leader who serves. They're leading you, showing you how to serve. And that's the same word as bishop. How many of y'all have heard the word elder? That's popular now because Reformed uh, theology has picked up quite a bit and they use the word elder. And so that's the same word, pastor, bishop, elder. And then this other one, um, the, uh, uh, overseer. <laughs> yeah, how would you like, oh, hey, overseer, Eddie. <laughs> that could be on my business card, right? I just prefer pastor, Eddie, or you can call me Eddie. The reason I want to be called pastor, Eddie, is because pastor has that connotation of being a chef. It keeps, every time you call me Pastor Eddie, I hear pastor, and it reminds me my job is to serve you. I am your shepherd. My job is to serve you in any way God gives me the ability to do. And I don't ever want to change. If you call me bishop, I might have to give you a fancy hat and start, you know, walking out a little more calmness. But it's the same word. Shoes. Pastor, bishop, overseer, and elder. Those are all the same word the way it's translated from the Greek, and they mean the same thing. So if you're not called to be a pastor, you're not called to be an elder. You're not called to be an elder, you're called to be a bishop. It's the same word in here. All right, so verse 2, he goes on and says, So a pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. And then everything else describes what beyond above reproach means. And so if pastors are supposed to be that, and pastors are servants, then they're supposed to be leading you all to be, help me out, what are those words? Above reproach. Right, Terry, so by my driving habits, I am supposed to lead you in being above reproach, but right now it's blindly blind right at this point. And season is not even here yet. But I'm helping, I'm working, man. God put you in my life for a reason. You're, you're here to help me be a better driver. You know? But so every one of us are supposed to be above So what does that mean? If we're supposed to be it, what does it mean? You know what it means? It means uh, it's also translated as blameless. But how many of y'all are blameless? None of us are blameless, right? Uh, but what it's talking about is not being able to grab a hold of them and be able to throw them in jail. <laughs> okay, it, it, that's really literally what it means. But what it also means, it means that no, you don't have any skeletons in the closet. No one can come later and say, ha, oh, guess what that guy does, and then blow your whole testimony. What it means is that if your life was just splayed open and exposed, that for the most part, man, you know what? It follows Christ. Now, again, none of us are without sin. But that word blameless means that you don't have any skeletons in the closet. You don't have any big...
big hidden secrets. You're not living a double life. How many th times have you seen in the gospel ministry some pastor that is put up on a pedestal, up on a pedestal, everybody's following, and all of a sudden something improper is exposed and it hurts all of the kingdom. <clears throat> and so what he's saying is, pastors, man, you got to be who you are. What you see is what you get. That's it, man. Your open book, it's there. And if you don't like, people don't like the open book, or you don't like the open book, then you need to make sure your open book follows the book. <laughs> and you need to keep working towards that. Not like, oh, whoop, that slipped. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> well, yeah, you did. It was in your heart. <laughs> and, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Well, yeah, you did. It came. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, you did. Because whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you are, it comes from your heart. So that's why we're constantly having to change our hearts. That's why we're constantly renewing our minds in the Word of God. So that as we are an open book, you're the same way you're at home as that you would be in church. You're the same way out in the waves as you would be in Burvis' diner, where him and Kevin work, you know? Uh, well, that's your office. They don't actually work for Mervis, but they work there. All right, so what I'm saying, guys, is that's the whole key. And then now he's going to go on and he's going to show people what it means to be above reproach. All of these other characteristics are going to describe what it means to have a life that is above reproach. So these are for all of us. It's just as pastors, we're supposed to be leading the way. And so when you see all of this, man, you, that's why you pray for your pastor, man. Pray for your pastor, because as he leads you, the enemy attacks. You ever step out to follow God and have the enemy attack you when you go to take the next step? Imagine what happens to pastors on a daily basis. You know? Imagine. That's why we covet. We need your prayers. Because we're human, just like you. We have bad days, just like you. We get depressed and discouraged, just like you. And we've got to stay in the Word and stay in it to keep ourselves encouraged. But we need your prayers as much as you need ours. We're all in this boat together. Just got a little different seat, you know, in all of this. But we're getting hit hard. So he goes on and he says that he's got to have a life that's above reproach. First thing he says, if the man is married, okay, he must be faithful to his wife. Now, this isn't written to say he has to be married. It isn't written to say he could you know, could not have been divorced, or that single men can't do this, and all. It's not about a marital status, it's about a moral status. And literally in the Greek, what this means, when it says faithful to his wife, it's a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Are you a one-woman man? You better say yeah, right now. How about you, Terry, you a one-woman man? Hey, you a one-woman man, how are you you are, right? It means you're not out flirting, you're not out playing people, you're not out, you know, you've got your wife. It means that everything you have as a man that is dedicated to a woman is to this one woman. You love her with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your guts, all your everything. She's a priority. There's God. Then there's her. Then there's your kids. Then there's your job. Then there's your hobbies and everything else. It means that she is a priority. She's treated. You love her the way Christ loves the church. Think about that one. How Christ loves the church. And that's the first sign. That's the first thing about being a one-woman uh, one woman man. About being above reproach is, is that dedication, that faithfulness to your wife. If you, and, and, and again, it's not about marital status. It's about a moral status. And how you treat your wife in it. 
So he goes on, he says, must be faithful as wife. Now, it says he must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. Let me break that down a little bit. Exercise self-control. How many of you know somebody where when you go to see them or you answer the phone or whatever, you never know what you're going to get? You could get like a raging maniac or you could get some sweet-talking, smooth, you know, comforting person. You know, you know somebody like that? Don't point to them or anything, okay? But you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's not it. That's not what he's saying. He said, when he's saying self-control, he's saying kind of even temper. Not a high head, and then some next time, oh, how are you doing, brother? We love you. Hey, what are you doing? You know, it's like, that's not what we're looking for. That's not what he's saying is a quality of a pastor. We're talking about somebody even tempered. And where is self-control? The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, patience, goodness, meekness. Self-control. So he's saying the only way your pastor as a human is going to be that way is the only way you as a human are going to be that way, and that is if you are filled with the uh, And your pastor's not filled with the Spirit. I'm not saying you can't be, but man, you should really try to find a pastor that is. <laughs> you really need to find one that is. And you should pray for your pastor to be filled with the Spirit because that's the only way anything supernatural is ever going to happen. And it's so easy, like any other job, any other position in life, it's so easy to get in a rut. Everybody know what a rut is, right? It's a casket with both ends kicked out. Yeah. Heard that before? Casket with both ends kicked out. And so it's easy to get that way, even in the ministry, where you're on autopilot. You're just doing this. Dude, you can go to sermons.com and find messages. <laughs> you can find them all over the place, man. Now you're only going to check sermon.com and see if that's where I'm getting them, right? <laughs> Dude, this stuff that comes out of my mouth, they will not print. All right? So, I'm just saying. But, but listen, man, he's just saying you got to be even-tempered. Man, when people come to you on your worst day, Lord, your best day, they got to get something close every time. And in order to have that self-control, that even-temperament. Now, Tom, I meet Tom in the morning. I was real, like, kind of lax this week, you know. And the next week we have waves, so we'll be there. But I meet him early in the morning, first thing for sunrise, take a sunrise photo, then we paddle out. And so Tom, they get to see a little different part of me sometimes. I might be a little whiny until after I get the close to steam on Tom, you know, and vice versa and stuff. But for the most part, even there, I need to be somewhat even-tempered, not because I'm putting on a show, not because I'm so present, but because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have self even tempered in all of that. You're not a high head one moment and then a lover boy the next moment. That's, it just doesn't work that way. And when he goes on and says exercise self-control, live wisely. That means you've got kind of a wise life going on. You know, you're, you've got things in somewhat of an order. There's somewhat of a scheme, somewhat of a plan. Some, I mean, basically, you are somewhat organized. I mean, you you live wisely. Wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective. And if you want to know what that looks like, read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs teaches you practical ways to be wise. And um, and for those of you who don't have a Bible reading program, there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs usually. And there are, there is always, but there's usually 31 days in a month. And so if you're not reading anything, whatever the date is, man, read that date of Proverbs and ask God to make one verse stick out to you. The next day, read the next day and the next day. And keep doing that. Every month it's different. And you'll start seeing what wisdom looks like. 
You know, soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. So when somebody comes to you and they're blown off steam and they're all hot-headed or they treat you wrong, if you have grievous words back at them, man, you've just thrown more fuel in the fire. And so a wise person is going to be able to shut up and just be able to sit back and be able to take it and listen and understand where it's coming from before they blow up themselves. And so on and so on and so on. But he says that's going to be characteristic of someone who's called to be a pastor. And so far, hey, Ashley, how, how's JJ doing so far? For the most part, not all the time, right? Hey, Mom, how's JJ doing? Is he still qualified? All right, JJ, you good? All right, we're our worst critics sometimes. But yeah, I think he's still qualified in all of that. And Kevin, your boss, how's he doing so far? Amazing. All right, good. All right, must be a man whose life's above reproach. Being above reproach, man, you're a one-woman man. You, uh, you have self-control. You live wisely. You have a good reputation. You know what? When people see you coming, they may not agree with your morals, and they may not agree with your theology, but they really can't disagree with your lifestyle because they know that your pur purpose is not to block hurt people. You're not a vindictive hurting person. You're not, your purpose is not to tear people down. But whether they agree with how you do it through your morals and your theology or not, what they do agree with is that your purpose is to try to help people and try to make them better. That's good for all of us. All of these are good. A pastor is supposed to be living this so that if he's not living it, how can he teach a congregation to live it? You know, do as I do as I say, not as I do doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work with your kids, guys. With your kids, you've got to practice what you preach, man. Because gone are the days where you just have that submissive authority in this world where people just do whatever you say. They want to see by example. That's who your dad. That's why you're here. You saw in your dad that example, and that's what you want to follow. And so that's it. They've got to see that happen. Live wisely, have a good reputation. Look at this next part. And this means in JJ and Ashley's little town home, uh, they're going to have like a big, huge reception. Everybody's invited. We'll give the address, right? Okay, it says uh, they must uh, enjoy having guests in their home. So we're all going to show up this afternoon and bomb their house. How about that? Yeah, and uh, that's not really what that means, okay? <laughs> what this really means when it talks about um, he must enjoy having guests in his home. The King James uses the word hospitable, but literally in the Greek what it means is means he loves strangers. Kevin, man, Kevin fits this. Kevin's a pastor, and we're probably going to have the opportunity, the privilege to be able to ordain him also. And, and Kevin didn't want to take away from JJ's thing, but Kevin, does Kevin love strangers, JJ? <laughs> yeah, dude, almost more than me. I love strangers. And, but that's what he's talking about. So if you don't know Kevin, man, raise your hand if you don't know Kevin. Kevin, look at all these strangers you got to know right now, right? So my time is over. But it means you love strangers. You know, how many of you all like really introvert? You hope some you hope you don't be a stranger today. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you for being honest. The rest of you liars just sit in your seat and follow it. Somebody don't talk to me! You know. And but literally as believers, as believers, we've got something valuable to share with everyone. And it's called love. And love is not selfish. Love is something we just pour out. It's like that big juicy mango, right? Man, that as you just eat it, it just drooled and it just gets all over everything. That's the way we're supposed to be as we love in this world. It's supposed to get all over everyone. And so if a pastor is a recluse and stays in his little office and then comes out and says, mm, excuse me, in the name of the Lord, you know, it's like, dude, that's not a pastor, that's a preacher. And I'm not saying that's wrong or whatever, but that's not 
what it's talking about here. It's about people. It's about their lives. It's about loving people. What you do is way more important than what you say. It validates it. You can say it all you want, but if you don't do it, it ain't, it ain't there. And so in this, it says you must enjoy having guests in your home. In other words, it says you must have strangers. And this was written at a time where that's where it was all at. And I'm not saying you can't have people in your home. You are welcome to my home, but I want you to know I have about an 80, 90 pound dog that smells like dog. And she sheds. And no human person and no vacuum cleaner can ever keep up with. But you're welcome, man, at my house. We live in our house. You're welcome there. You know? But it ain't, you know, we live in it. So it says you must enjoy having guests in your home. And this is, this next part here is the thing that distinguishes a pastor over a deacon or anyone else necessarily in the church. And it says he must be able to teach. A deacon is supposed to just serve. They're an example of serving. In fact, how many of y'all heard the word deacon before? You've got deacons in churches. And some churches have erroneously meant deacons are supposed to run the church. And that's not exactly how it is. The word deacon is it literally translates out as servant. And they're supposed to be serving. And that word deacon, check this out. Whenever you find a word, you can go back and look at how they came up with that word to begin with. So there were guys back, evidently, for, you know, when there were dirt roads, who they were always going here. They were always doing this. They were always moving. And like the roadrunner, you remember when the roadrunner got going, there was a cloud of a dust. Yeah. And so the, when they had to describe what it meant for there to be a cloud of dust because somebody was moving, serving, helping people, they came up with this word for deacon. And so it means stirring up dust, but not in the way you think. <laughs> it means because they're busy going from one place to the other serving. And so that's what a deacon is, is just somebody who's the model church member. And we don't necessarily have the deacon position at Driftwood yet. Uh, I think most every person who comes to Driftwood fulfills that role. I see you guys stirring up beautiful dust serving our Savior all the time. It's so awesome to watch that happen and hear about it in our life groups and see it. And so that's what deacon is. But in this, the elder, the bishop, the pastor, the overseer must be able to teach. They must be able to take the word of God and present it to you in a way that you can understand it, you can remember it, and then you can apply it to your life. Because when you apply it to your life, I guarantee you that you will then, it'll work and you'll have to share it with others. So... That's what they're supposed to be able to do. And I hope that's what I do for you. Everybody understand what I'm saying so far? Yeah. Okay, because you can't really revoke my you know, ordination, but, <laughs> but you could get Jaylee to go to the Actually, uh, on the 17th, we praying because Tom, uh, Carlos, and I are going to go on that recon trip to Nicaragua with Pastor Benny. And, um, and uh, we're going to be like getting into Nicaragua early, early Sunday morning. And then pray for us. We'll give you more details on that. We'll be gone until Friday. But uh, while we're gone, JJ will be preaching that day. So um, he's a great speaker. The youth are going to love him. Everybody's going to love him, man. And uh, he's, he's just very good at teaching God's Word and making it applicable to you. So I can't wait for that to happen. And we'll record it so I don't have to miss it. I'll get it on my app. And get the wrong one. By the way, if you guys want to download your app yet, you got it? All right, good. All right, so they must be able to teach. So he says, to be above reproach, you've got to be a one-woman man. You've got to be even-tempered. You've got to have some structure and order in your life. You need to have a good reputation. Uh, you must uh, be hospitable. You must be able to teach. Next verse, Tom. He must not be a heavy drinker. All right, JJ. 
Uh, a heavy drinker. Now, it, uh, that's not talking about sweet tea, so I think you're good, bro. All right? Uh, it comes from the South. Sweet tea. All right. Let's not be a heavy drinker or be violent. And so what this is talking about um, is that it, as a pastor, you can't be drunk. You can't be high. You can't be in another state of conscience. You need to be sober. Because how would it be if you called me with your dire emergency and I just trash? How do you feel about that? You know, you're calling me and you get a phone call. Oh, no, they don't talk to you tomorrow. No, I'm just like, you probably said, okay, I sound like that anyway. But, <laughs> but seriously, you know, the way I look at it myself is that I have done so many things to take the enemy off that if I ever got in another state of consciousness where I could not make sober, clear direction, that would be the time the enemy would attack me. And it will be the same for you as you follow Christ and get closer to Him. You will find that you won't have the desire to be in another state of consciousness. It will be scary to be in another state of consciousness. Because you cannot be sober. Apostle Paul told the Corinthians when they were saying, well, we allowed to do this, we allowed to do that. And he said, look, man. Do things that are helpful. Don't do things that are hurtful. Don't do things that are habit-forming. And do things that are honoring to God. And when he started talking about habit-forming, he said if something has control of you at a particular point in time, then God doesn't have control of you. If something has control of you and it's not God at that point in time, then God does not have control of you. So I'm not telling you to drink, don't drink, do heroin, don't do I'm not. I'm not talking about all those things right now. We should be praying for our community, man. You know how many OD overdoses there are every single day in our community? You know the latest heroin to come out right now is laced with an elephant tranquilizer? And you know how many people are dying from this stuff? This is serious business here. But the point is, is that for us who are believers, man, what are, what are you going to do when somebody needs your spiritual health and you're not in the state of mind you can help? That's all I'm saying. You know, for me personally, when I was drinking before I became a believer, when I was doing I didn't know when the next dream was put me under. I wasn't that good because I do everything in excess. And now I know that I've always got to be alert and I've got to be sober and I've got to be ready to serve God in every situation. If something else has control of me, then God doesn't have control. You can't have them both. I guarantee it. Only one can have control. You can't serve two masters, even for a period of time. So in this, he says he can't be a heavy drinker. He's got to be sober-minded. And he can't be violent. You know? Now, I will guarantee you that there are times as a pastor where you've told somebody a million times, and the next thing you want to do, you really love to wring their neck. Uh, you all have somebody you'd like to wring their neck. Anybody ever want to wring somebody's neck? All right, but how many of y'all don't do it because it's not going to work? You know? How many of you like to punch somebody in the face, but you don't do it because it's not going to work, right? All right, like the one who made you lose the race. You know, Terry's wife beat him here today. They were race times. <laughs> it was strategically God put a slow driver in front of him, and God was working on Terry's testimony. You were praying for her, weren't you? <laughs> do it next time, bro. Do it next time. I'm just saying. But, but seriously, a pastor can't be violent. And a, a believer shouldn't be violent. There's other ways to solve it. The fruit of the Spirit is violence. Is that what it says? No. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, patience, goodness, gentleness, meekness, all of those things. And he says, but the manifestations of the flesh, you'll find plenty of violence in that. 
He goes on, you must be gentle. That's another fruit of the Spirit. Gentle, and, and you, you know, we're called to be shepherds to sheep, but at the same time, we're sheep. How many of y'all ever know anything about sheep and how dumb sheep are? I'm not saying you guys are dumb. I'm just saying sheep are dumb. And, and, and they wander off. They do things, man. Sheep get turned upside down and can't get themselves turned around. And you know, in trying to help people, sometimes people just don't see it from a godly perspective. And they get in a mess. But it's at those times that, as believers, they need love more than anything in the entire world. And if you're not a gentle person, if you're not a loving person filled with the Spirit, you can be pretty condemning. And in fact, there's a lot of people that would say Christians are very, very condemning as opposed to loving and helping. What a pastor is supposed to show you and help you understand how to be gentle in this situation. Because someone who's in a mess, they would love to be loved. And love isn't giving what they want, but it's giving them what they need. And being gentle is part of that. And so he goes on with this, not quarrelsome, uh, not always arguing, you know, about everything. Because when you argue, what are you telling people about yourself? You're telling them you know it all, right? Know Anybody know know-it-alls? It's like anything you say, no, it's not, no, it's not. I mean, I'm not talking about your kids' teeth. That's not, that's how kids are, right? The best way to find out you don't know everything is by going out and trying all the things you think you know. <laughs> and you find out you don't know it all right away. And we've all gone through that. But quarrelsome, man. You know what? There's things that God will only show me through my wife that he won't show me any other way. There's things that God will show me through Tom that he won't show me any other way. That's why I keep showing up at sunrise. I hear, I hear, there's things I hear from you guys, from all of you guys. There's things, Adam's questions. Sometimes I send, I, I send him scripture every morning with a number of you guys, and, and he asks me questions back, and there's things God shows me in that that I can't see any other way. So if I'm a know-it-all, and everybody's wrong, and I'm always right, am I going to learn? How many of you know everything? What's your hand? Do you know everything? All right, how many of y'all think you know everything? <laughs> I know, you're just playing along, Dutch. This is not a time to like, help me out, right? Yeah, but, but seriously, if you, don't, if you don't take criticism, if you don't take advice, if you think you know it all, then you really don't know anything. There's a surf movie I brought up before called Shelter, and there's this old doorman in New York City that gets to deal with the richest, most prevalent, prominent people in the entire world. And this guy, he's just, you know, shuffling bags and doing this, but he's been exposed to all these people. And one of the scenes, he says, he ushers this dude into this limo and all this, and he says, you know about the dumbest person in the world, the one that thinks they know everything. And it's like, it's stuck. You can't be that way. Your pastor can't be that way. You guys have something to tell me, tell me. And you know what? If I respond quarrelsome, I'm like, uh-huh. You know what? Tell me that, too. Help me out. I need your help. JJ needs your help. We're all in this together, man. We're all believers. We're all on the same team. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all the same boat. It's got a little bit of a seat. Now, look at the end of this here. Uh, not quarrelsome and does not love money. Okay? They say can't like it. I'm just saying. <laughs> you got to have something to survive, but the bottom line is your love is God. That's it. We love is God, and God says that if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, everything you need will be added unto you. That's for every one of us. But if we make money our God, again, that's exactly the context of where He said you can't serve two masters. You can't. And in church world, as well as business world, as 
well as any other world, money can become a god. And all of a sudden, church is now about nickels and nose. It's about recruiting people who can pay the bills. It's about, about keeping certain people because maybe they have something to offer the church and not caring about other people because you don't see what value they have. It becomes now about nickels and noses and budgets and butts, and that's wrong. That is not what God determined in His church. It's a place where we all seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything we need to be added to us. And if we're all doing that, yeah, he's going to put on our hearts to give. I don't talk about that a lot, but how many of y'all know we got a couple rusty buckets here? <laughs> we got a couple rusty buckets, man. I don't talk about it a whole lot. And but reason I give is because I know that that what it reminds me that everything I have belongs to God. And that as I give back part of what's already his, then I have full of rights to expect him to provide all my other needs. If I'm not giving him back what he is his, and he's already asked me to give, then it's hard for me to ask him for what I need. He's like, well, we'll start obeying me. And so for me, that's why I give. It reminds me that it all belongs to him. But again, in this, if it was all about budgets and butts and nickels and noses, man, you wouldn't feel the love you feel. That's not what it's about. It can't be about the money. God takes care of all of that stuff in our hearts. And if I could just tell you all the stories of how God has provided, it would blow you away. How God has worked things out. It's the you've experienced. I got miracle stories. If this whole economy went down, we got out of here, and ISIS took over, or the economy tanked, or whatever, I don't care. That's God's gift, not mine. I know if I had nothing, I got George Mueller stories where God's provided something out of nothing. Over and over that doesn't mean I sit back and be lazy and do what I'm not supposed to do. But what I'm saying is that with a pastor, you can't be making decisions about based on money. You can't make decisions based on that. It's about loving people. You let God take care of all the other stuff. So he says he can't love money. Verse 4, he must manage his own family well, have the children respect and obey him, for a man cannot manage his own household. How can he take care of God's church? It's simple. If he does have a family, bottom line, look how he's managing his family. Look at the fruit of that, because why? how is he going to manage his family any different than he managed a church? You know? And so that's, you know, that's something to look at. Now, I think Keone's doing pretty good right now with <laughs> mom back there. You know, you know this whole word nation sign-off right now is going to depend on how Keone behaves the rest of the service. <laughs> Finn, forget it. Hey, you don't even try to be ordained there, Gary. <laughs> He's going to be a preacher. But, but you look at how their family is, because that's a good indication of how he leads his family to be the same way as he leads a church. A, chief, a church leader must not be a new believer, because he might become proud and the devil will cause him to fall. A new believer, someone who just started following Christ, has a lot to learn. How many of you have learned a lot in the last week? <laughs> the last month, the last year. And as you learn, because I will tell you what, in the ministry, you are going to be hit with all kinds of situations. And here's what I have. I don't have a little book to open up and say, oh, yeah, chapter 32, here you go. Boom, this is what you do. I, I do have a Bible that gives me principles. But you know what I have? What I do have is I have 20-something years of experience that I've lived this in my life. And I say, Hey, Laura, this is what I would do. This is what I did, and this how it worked for me, both good and bad. And so a new believer, you know what? Maybe you start to make stuff up just so people will do something. They don't sound stupid. But 
you know what, JJ, I'm going to tell you one of the most spiritual things you can say is, and for all of you guys, anybody ever get asked questions from people and you don't know the answer? Okay, everybody follow me on this. It's three words. If somebody asks you something you don't know, be honest and say, I don't know. Can I hear that one more time? They ask you a question you don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's exactly. Just say it. I don't know, but let me find out. And you know what? Sometimes God brings people in your life to ask a question, to bring up a situation, because he wants to get you to go deep and wants you to get rid of your little floaties so you can go deep and you can then find out the answer. It's really for you why they're there. So the most spiritual thing you say when you don't know is what again? And then find out. Don't just blow it off and wait for only questions you know you do know the answer for. In fact, every situation is different. You should always be seeking the Holy Spirit to know what He wants you to do in this situation. So He goes on. I can't be a new believer. JJ, how long have you been saved? How long have you been a believer? Uh, sophomore year, high school. So okay. It's been Right, so he's not a new, but he's been in the ministry now for five or six years, and and I've seen lots of wise counsel. And man, wait till you hear youth get involved in their ministry. It's gonna be cool. You're gonna love them, man. He's he's the real deal, and so is my daughter. <coughs> in that, they're anointed. We're, I'm blessed to have them here at Driftwood. And so goes on to say uh, next verse, and this is the last one. Look at this. It says also, and this is what's true about you. It says, people on the outside of the church, people who don't go to church, people who don't believe in Christ, they must speak well of you so that you will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. And in other words, what he's saying is, is that people should speak well. They may not agree with you. They may not agree with you morally. But what they agree with is that you are truly out to serve That's just, that's it. It's not all about you. And they know that from dealing with you. That it's about, you're really trying to serve God whether they believe or not. And you're trying to serve, you're trying to help them whether they want to. And that's really what it is. Um, Emily, I heard you got a superlative. Like, you know, she's a senior this year, and Ashley was telling me I probably should have asked permission, but it's too late now. But, uh, superlative. Uh, Ashley, tell me, what were they? Say that again? Yeah, that, what a cool superlative. You know, most athletic, what happened to all of us that were voted most athletic? We all got pot bellies and went bald, right? You know what I'm it's like, uh, it happens. Uh, most, you know, likely to, actually, I was in my Catholic high school I went to, I was most likely to become a truck driver. <laughs> I was kind of a redneck back then. Thinking that antiquated Bible's all it said, you know, and all that stuff. But at least, dude, he believes it. 
He's teaching it. He believes it. What an idiot, but he believes it. But we know God's given us faith, the desire and ability to see him from his perspective. And he's given us that grace. So, I will say, but how many of you would support JJ being um, ordained in our church? How many of you would say, no, the dude's a loser? In the New Testament, the way that people were ordained or set apart is a church saw the calling on your life. The church said, yes, we are going to vouch that these folks have been called into the gospel ministry. And they simply came and they laid hands on them. And what that meant was they just simply said a prayer. And, and that was their way of saying that I, I support this. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to pray over them. But as soon as I'm done praying, um, it's not going to be what I'd like to ask you to do is kind of like just line up maybe behind Tom. <laughs> right and just basically, you, just, you don't have to say anything out loud. You just say something silently and just pray over them very quickly and just let them know that you approve of this. All right. So, uh, anyway, just bow. And you go ahead and get line if you'd like. <coughs> Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for bringing Ashley and JJ here. Father, thank you for um, calling them into the ministry. Thank you for calling them specifically to Driftwood and calling them here to, um, uh, to the beach. Father, it's so awesome. This is their calling on their life. Father, again, I ask that you would not necessarily bless them, but you would meet them to do things you would bless. You would keep that in mind. With the perspective of making you number one in their lives, if they sell out to you, if they, if they, if they trust in you with everything, and you and love you with everything, you cause them to love others. And so, Father, um, as they love others, Father, if they believe that gospel, use them in a mighty, mighty way to proclaim the gospel in ways that we have to follow. Yeah.